Futurized goes beneath the trends, tracking the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. Join me, futurist Trond Arne Unheim, PhD author, investor, and serial entrepreneur, as I discuss the societal impact of deep tech, such as AI, blockchain, IoT, nanotech, quantum, robotics, and synthetic biology, and tackle topics such as entrepreneurship trends for the future of work. I'm a research scholar in global systemic risk, innovation, and policy at Stanford University. On Futurized, I interview smart people with a soul, founders, authors, executives, and other thought leaders, or even the occasional celebrity. Futurized is a bi-weekly show preparing you to think about how to deal with the next decade's disruption so you can succeed and thrive no matter what happens. Futurized, conversations that matter. If you're new to the show, seek particular topics or are looking for a great way to tell your friends about the show, we've got the episode categories. Those are at futurized.org slash episodes. I am the co-author of Augmented Lean, a human-centric framework for managing frontline operation and the author of Health Tech Rebooting Society's Software, Hardware and Mindset Future Tech, How to Capture Value from Disruptive Industry Trends, Pandemic Aftermath, How Coronavirus Changes Global Society, the Disruption Games, How to Thrive on Serial failure and of leadership from below how the internet generation redefines the workplace for an overview you can go to trondenheim.com books at this stage futurize is lucky enough to have several sponsors and to check them out go to futurized.org sponsors if you're interested in sponsoring the podcast or to get an overview of other services provided by me including how to book me for keynote speeches please go to futurize.org store we'll consider all brands that have demonstrably positive contributions to the future. Before you do anything else, make sure you are subscribed to our newsletter on futurist.org, where you can find hundreds of episodes of conversations that matter to the future. Please also leave a positive review on iTunes. Thanks so much. Erin, how are you? Welcome to the show. Wonderful. Great to be with you, Trond. Yeah, I'm I'm so excited to to do this recording. I've been reading Donut Economics. I've been thinking about these things and uh, so happy to have you on. I, I want to start with you, Ersh. You have an interesting background. You shared with me uh, because I think this topic is something that you need to be pr- primed for in a certain way to be <laughs> someone who leads who leads this topic it's not uh simple and it, it, it you know it, it it entails changing categories so your your background for me was it spoke uh, volume so you, you you know your turkish origin you migrated to uh australia you have uh, a bunch of uh degrees from universities in australia but then you made your way i think to the uk and to various uh, jobs, Procter & Gamble, I don't know what country that was, and then Oxfam, uh, you've been the CEO of Fair Trade uh, Certifier, a verifier company called WFTO, and uh, now you are the uh, business and enterprise lead at the Donut Economics Action Lab, or DEAL, um, and which of course had its origin in the book Donut Economics by Kate Rayworth, and you share with me you uh, met her at at Oxfam. So this probably butchered your uh, very interesting and kind of intricate cultural journey. Uh, but I want to just hear with you, even just listing off all of those experiences, that must uh, be quite a journey. Tell me a little bit about that. 
Well, yeah, no, thanks, Trond. I think you've succinctly summarized um, all the key components of it. I mean, the, the key threads that I think come through is that I come from a, a family that's rich in migration. My, my great-grandparents were migrants, my grandparents were migrants, my parents migrated to Australia. So there's this sense of um, moving to new places that, that's uh, very inherent in, in my identity and, and background. The other big question has been, I've always been interested in, in business, what business is, what business can be, uh, all the way through, whether I was working in law. I remember a, uh, a colleague, a senior colleague once saying to me, look, I'm not sure what you're actually doing is law. It, it sounds more like you're trying to get into the big business discussions with clients. And, and I think he was right. Um, so I ended up trying to get into into the big world of business. And, when, and Procter & Gamble was, was one of the biggest beasts out there to, to join. I, I, I love the strategic thinking side of it, the market strategy, the, 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 the general sort of dynamism of the business world. But I also wanted to transform it. And, and it was there that I realized that these companies are designed to not be transformed in the way that we would like to see them transformed. And that, that thread, that observation that happened 15 years ago has sort of followed me whether it's through my role in government, my, my, my role in the NGO world, my role in, in, in sort of leading a global network of, of social enterprises and fair trade enterprises, um, or, and my role here currently at Dota Economics Action Lab is how would we design businesses differently that can pursue the goals of society and our living planet? And that curiosity, that persistence in asking that question, often very unwelcome question uh, because it brings up very inconvenient conclusions and sub-questions, sub that's been, I think, a, a core part of my journey. Yeah, and I wanted to go there because I think it's not like you couldn't lead this work or be engaged in this kind of work if you had none of these experiences, but I do think it must give you a kind of background. And I, you know, like you, I've also straddled many different geographies and, and organizations. And it just gives you a perspective that is somewhat unique. And I think the insider perspective is particularly salient. I think when you're trying to go back to those same organizations and say, there's a different way. And that different way is actually so different that you know you, you might not even be able to do it from the inside unless you had that, that experience. I don't know if, if you want to comment on that. And then let's you know, jump into kind of the, the topic. But, you know, a change maker let's let's talk about that for a moment how, how how do you see that role is that something that everyone can embrace because part of what we're talking about here is some massive amount of changes that you have described in this book as very very necessary and my question i guess first is just about change makers who can be change makers i think Everyone can be a change maker, but the big question is, are they willing to sit through the discomfort of being a change maker? Because there's a lot of change that can happen in a comfortable way. There's a lot of change that's, you know, win-win, that sort of fits the current systems and ecosystems that we're part of, institutions that, that, that we join, companies, businesses, investor organizations. But the vast majority of the big transformations and changes I think that need to happen now are not those low-hanging fruits. They're not the win-wins. They're, they're the uncomfortable, difficult things that need to happen. And that means that there, there needs to be a willingness to sit with that discomfort of realizing actually sometimes you go against the grain. Sometimes you 
are doing something because it's going to disrupt. It's going to disrupt the status quo, and people are going to push back. People are, go- are going to be angry. People are, m- m- might actually resist the kind of change, or you might need to be a little bit more stealth in what you're changing or you're trying to change. But, but I think that's where the the big question that jumps out for me with change makers are: are, are we willing to? Be change makers, even when it's uncomfortable, unwelcome, and we receive pushback. Hmm. Let's jump straight to donut economics. So this book was written in 2017, and it describes the subtitle is Seven Ways to Think Like a 21st Century Economist. So it's very tied to a notion of economics. Uh, the big metaphor in there is obviously a donut. And if I'm going to paraphrase that, uh, you know, the inside of the donut is what we might know from uh, kind of, uh, I guess, social uh, and uh, political goals that are very important to to reach as a, 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 you know, as a society and business. And then the outside of this donut are these planetary boundaries that we have gotten to know now um, in terms of ecological um, systems that are earth is uh, dependent on and uh, the book attempts i think to tell us all to strike a balance and to redesign an economics around that first of all i mean i don't know if that was a fair description but what is donut economics in a nutshell well i mean i i think that is a pretty good description but to, to sort of expand it a little bit i mean the donut consists as as you mentioned trond of two concentric rings a social foundation that's to ensure that no one is left falling short on life's essentials and an ecological ceiling to ensure that humanity does not collectively overshoot the planetary boundaries that protect Earth's life-supporting systems. And it, it's between these two sets of boundaries that there's a donut-shaped space that is both ecologically safe and socially just, a, a space in which humanity can thrive within the means of our living world. Now, this felt significant. It's not the first time people pointed out that we need to achieve social goals, nor is it the first time people pointed out there are boundaries that our planet has that Earth system scientists have, have pointed out. But bringing them together into that shape tells us that, A, there are trade-offs, that there are tensions, that are, and actually there are implications on our economic system, which is not designed to pursue this goal. It's designed to pursue other goals from 20th century and 19th century when we didn't see this picture. We didn't see a picture of us being an overshoot of the planet's boundaries. We didn't see a picture of humanity being on shortfall on life's essentials for billions of people around the world. And that means that if we were to redesign based on on those ideas, rather than, for instance, on scarcity of financial capital, which a lot of our current economic system is designed around, then I think the core and the root of the economic discipline becomes shaken and it becomes very clear that a a significant change in mindset, in concepts and ideas needs to also evolve. Mm. So I'm fascinated by this metaphor of the donut because obviously it's a... (laughs) It's a funny metaphor these days. We're, we're all trying to eat less donuts, but uh, but uh, on the other hand, it seems to you know metaphors really play uh, to to a big big audience, and there, there's a certain traction uh, around it. It's easy to grasp at least the fundamentals of it and start discussing it. Um, but I guess 
the the proof's in the pudding a little bit, right? Because if you do look at each aspect, I mean, both the inside and the outside of this donut, they are very complicated things, aren't they, right? So these are system scientists that are telling us a lot of things on the outside of the donut, on the boundary side, and then you, even the, the, the inner core, right? It consists of hard-to-measure things that uh, the UN and national statistical bodies and, and others are scratching their heads on, you know, uh, about, um, and, and, and they're near impossibilities to kind of fully get right. So I guess the core of my question here is, as this is now being attempted to, to be kind of measured and downsized to sort of national scale, to company scale, to, I don't know, you tell me, individual scale, um, is there truly an economics in this? Because it sounds right, it intuitively is something I think a lot of people want to believe in, it is something that sounds like it makes a lot of sense. But I think isn't the real question, it, I, there's a description here, but is there true economics here? In other words, there are companies earning money today who want to earn money tomorrow. There are salaried workers going to work and they are perhaps worried that's okay. You know, they can take a little pain, but they don't want to lose their job. They don't want to basically take the foundation out of, of everything that sustains them and their families or their communities. So where is the economics in the donut? Yeah, I mean, uh, before I jump, jump into that, just a sort of a one minor correction. We, we are downscaling the donut to places. We're downscaling it to human populations, not to companies. We don't, we don't think that the principles of donut economics allows us to downscale to the donut to a company the same way you would for a human population that has got an equal right to, say, natural resources and, and the Earth's boundaries. But putting that aside, I, I think there is an absolute central economic point here, which is that if this is the outcome that our current economic models and systems have created, this pursuit of endless GDP growth, this pursuit of endless profit growth, this way of judging investments purely based on financial returns across the board, then the result is not looking good. I mean, if you were to look at the picture of the donut, the numbers that are being crunched on, on the planetary boundaries and the social foundations, what you, what you see is imagine those two concentric circles and there's a huge red overshoot on a whole bunch of planetary boundaries, and there's a huge red shortfall on a whole bunch of social foundations. You know, if I was talking to a business person, I would say essentially what we've been doing, what our economic model goals, ideals have taken us into is we're overusing our budget to under-deliver on our outcomes. We're overusing the planet's resources while under-delivering on the social goals that we need to achieve um, through our economic activity. And that means that, you know, if we start to change the goal, we start to change what the point of economics is. It's not to endlessly grow GDP, but to instead become agnostic to GDP and say that, look, this is about making sure that we're meeting those social and ecological goals. Getting in the donut becomes the goal of economics and the design of economic institutions and ideas. Then we, we start to, to really get into the realm of, of new economic thinking. Then we start to think, well, how do markets operate? How do incentive structures work? How, how do we retain employment? And, and of course, how do we make sure we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater in that transition? 
in that transformation that happens that we don't end up basically just ripping away an economy that also provides a lot of benefits, a lot of social and and some in some cases ecological benefits, but is overall doing a whole lot of damage to society and our planet. How do we make sure that we don't just destroy this without um, having a transition? So I think those are some of the ideas that come out of the economics behind donut economics. Well, Ernst, there, there seems to be uh, a bit of a balance in this framework that's different from a lot of the post-growth thinking and degrowth thinking that is out there otherwise, right? Because in some, or, or in even in some of the regeneration thinking, I know regeneration is a big concept in in the donut economics book, but when I read other uh, accounts of regeneration, they are typically more extreme. So they talk about, you know, we have to completely pull out, you know, industry is a weed essentially, you know, uh, but that doesn't seem to be your approach here. You, you, you're saying as long as you're within the boundary somehow, and that can be defended and measured and, and you're confidently within the boundary, some of this activity can go on. So it's not, it's not an all out war on Simon Kuznets's notion of GDP per se. You're not saying GDP is not at all the goal. You're just saying it's not the only goal. Or am I wrong about that? I think we're saying we're agnostic to it. It seems almost irrelevant whether after achieving those social and ecological goals that actually matter to human beings and the planet on which we depend, the economy happened to grow because of the way we crunched the numbers or happened to contract because of the way those numbers were contracted were, were, were constructed, it feels almost irrelevant like to, to focus on that debate of you know whether it grows or doesn't grow. I mean what we what we need to see is a, is a thriving society. We need to see a thriving economy. We need to see markets functioning. Um, and that can happen. I mean you can have growth in GDP in situations where there's such high levels of inequality that most people are getting poorer. You can have growth in GDP where for most parts of the economy, it's actually suffering and in recession, but on net, because of how it, how it sort of averages out, GDP happened to have grown. I mean, it's, it feels fairly arbitrary to, to say this number needs to be higher every year. And instead, I think focusing on what actually matters and building economies around pursuing those goals, even though it's, it's more complicated. I mean, th that single bottom line figure I know the drawer of that. I know that it is, it, you know, in business, the single bottom line of profit. In, in uh, the, the world of, of investment, you know, the single bottom line of returns, risk-adjusted returns. On, in the world of, of, you know, economics, the single bottom line of GDP, there's a draw to that simplicity. But that simplicity comes at the cost of actually disregarding the things that actually matter and using it as a proxy for things that, it's no longer a proxy if it ever was. I see your point, but you're fighting massive forces here, right? Because the entire economic profession, essentially, plus the uh, technologists out there, and even some eco-modernists who believe technology can, in the future, solve all problems, they're all saying, listen for a second, you know, we are now... Uh, on the cusp of new technological revolutions, the economy grows exponentially. We will eventually fix all problems because the cake keep get, get, keeps getting larger. So all the things you're talking about here cannot be fixed on a more limited 
degrowth economy or or one that slides sideways, you know, in in sort of old GDP ways. What is the counter to that argument? Because what you are saying is, if I'm reading you correctly, is that we're going to have to accept lower technical growth uh, because it's not the, uh, you know, that's not what we're seeking. So then, you know, the economists that are not onto your donut model will still say, yes, there are some issues here, but because the entire cake grows, we will be able to fix all these smaller problems along the way because we have so much more resources 10 years from now, 30 years from now to fix all these problems. And these are temporary problems. I mean, I would just flip it on, on its head and say, let's fix those problems. And if the cake happens to have grown in the process, fine. If, it, if we happen to fix those problems without the cake technically growing in the process, that's fine too. I mean, I think mm. the point is that for the first time, we're seeing this combination of an ecological ceiling being in overshoot, which, which means that we do have an ecological footprint that our economy is creating. And there are limits to how much we can expand that. You know, I know that there are there are concepts and ideas out there to say let's delink this. You can have, you know, we can we can all give each other, we can all do services to each other. We'll just do loads of massages back and forth and cook each other meals in our homes, and that would be the way that you know you'll create the kind of gross domestic product that that adds up to a great amount. And and if you know if there is a way of getting to an economy that that does that through, for instance, services that have very little ecological footprint or through products that have preferably a, a, a positive ecological footprint and the benefits of those of that GDP growth is shared far more equitably than it, than it is currently then then that's great I mean if that happens that's fantastic it just hasn't been the case it hasn't been the case for over 100 years that that that's the direction we go we end up putting pressure on our planet to a point where it can't sustain this kind of economic activity anymore. And that's the economic activity that the, the, the sort of mindless pursuit of economic growth ends up creating. Yeah, I guess it was Daniel Bell's post-industrial society that didn't happen, right? The whole service economy was, uh, you know, a lot of futurists were staking their their ground there and, and saying, you know, indu- industrial society is over. Uh, we have accomplished what we need to accomplish. But we, we seem to be, though, uh, in the middle of another industrial revolution. That's my point. And and, and it's, it's hard to, to fight an economic and technological revolution is just what I'm saying. So, uh, but let's, let's go to these uh, tools because... Uh, and the examples of what 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 the donut economy uh, and economics has has been doing, because from what I see, there are a lot of people uh, going behind this. You, you have a movement of people who are aligning around this and are starting to use the framework in interesting ways. Can you g- give us a sense of that? Because I th- I think that'll that, that'll kind of ground this, and you know what does it mean on a on a real level. Uh, give, give me some examples of some either companies or, or people that, that are working with you. Sure. I mean, so we've always had this mantra, don't be the movement, join the movement. And it was about, yeah. and what that means in practice is that we create tools that can be integrated into the work of others so that we can connect with them, help them to build their wider movement and, and help that broader economic trans- transformation. So the idea was always like, how do we support all of those movements out there that are creating change, that are transforming the economy, 
creating tools on applying donut economics in different contexts, in different um, to different sort of organizations and, and situations has been a core part of that. Um, in the world that I work on, in the work that I lead on business and enterprise, we've created a tool for those that engage with business to, to use, to say, look, if you are interested in donut economics, that means that the businesses that you might work in, you might lead, you might have founded, you might invest in, you might engage in as a consultant or that you, you work with as you know, in a community of, of businesses or a business network, well, those businesses will need to really up their game to become regenerative by design and to become distributive by design. So regenerative because they need to work with and within the cycles of the living world and distributive because we need to share value far more equi equitably with all those who, who co-created it. So essentially what this tool does is helps them think through, well, if those are the biggest ideas we need to pursue, we need to change our product so that the design of it is modular. So we're creating zero waste and we're allowing people to fix things. When we need to change our supply chain, so regenerative agriculture is happening, organic agriculture, mixed models of farming are happening to create far more sustainable and regenerative you know, models of growing crops. Or we need to change the way we treat our workers or our, our communities so that much more of the value is going to, to them and they feel empowered and a part of this. Or we need to change the way we price our products so that actually these essential products that consumers need need to be accessible. And, and that's how that's going to be our role. So if we're going to belong to a future economy that is regenerative and distributive by design, we're going to need to do see these massive things. What we found in work we did with over 300 companies in uh, cities and places around the world was that most companies are designed to prevent them pursuing this. I mean, we've known about modular phone design for, for a decade now. Fairphone, the company, has created a, that model for years. However, built-in obsolescence of having phones that are created to, to fall apart in two or three years so you can buy a new one, that business model has been incredibly lucrative and it's continued. The design of the company is, has ensured that whatever creates the highest sales and the highest margins is the strategy and the idea that it will pursue. So when you put these big ideas down, you realize that it's not an accident that these ideas aren't pursued. It's by design. And, and so we need to redesign these companies. We need to look at ways of how do we change their board to make sure that other voices are on there, not just investors trying to get a short-term return. How do we make sure that you know they're, they're, the way that they calculate margins can be much more flexible so they can pursue those ideas that are going to be viable but also able to create social and ecological impact? How do we make sure they can reinvest internally into research and development, for instance, into their supply chain, into their workforce to create those sorts of outcomes that they need? How do we make sure their ownership model can evolve so that over time that they have a far more mixed long-term view of ownership that allows them to be stewards of their purpose? All of these things that, that, that fundamentally change the design of the company that's what the tool lets them do. It lets them go through a process of asking the questions around what, what are the biggest ideas? How do we draw them out? Really, really pursue those scariest ideas and then think, well, how might the design of this business need to evolve to enable and unlock these kinds of ideas? And how can we then change the design of this business over time? If you're a startup, you might be in a position to make those decisions in a fairly bold way pretty early. If you're a large company that's listed on the stock exchange, it might be a slower transition. If you're a private company that's owned by a family, 
perhaps the family is able to lead that sort of charge and embolden the, the deep design. But, but the core of that tool, for instance, is to say that if you want to pursue donut economics, then you need to fundamentally redesign your business so that it allows you to both generate these bold, regenerative and distributive ideas and to pursue those bold, regenerative and distributive ideas, invest in them, to, to back them, create strategies around them, to encourage and reward staff for coming up with them and pursuing them. So that's an example of a tool we put out there to guide people through it. It's in the, the creative commons. So we ask anyone can use it. We've got some guidelines around how they can associate with donut economics. We're not saying we're certifying anyone. No one's a donut company because they've gone through the tool or anything. There's no way of judging you know, who's done it well or not well. But what we ask is that they use it with integrity and ask the boldest questions and, and then talk about the design changes they are willing to undergo to unlock those ideas of the future. You know, Aaron, as you're uh, speaking about this, one of the things I think I like about this approach is there seems to be some thinking and visioning uh, that you're asking people to do. And so much work these days is just so unidimensional into uh, measurement frameworks. They jump too quickly, in my view, uh, into measuring, right? So there's this emphasis on, you know, we already know what needs to be done. And here is a, an even better mousetrap to measure things. And it also has this whole bad conscience thing wrapped around. And, and you seem to be speaking in a much more positive language. You're, you're trying to make people embrace changes and actually believe in these changes. And you're giving them tools to reevaluate their own goals, not just sort of take on some government's, uh, you know, really tough measurement framework and, and write a CSR report that looks a little better for the next uh, board meeting. The, tell me a little bit about how what, this approach is different from, I guess, what happened right after the sustainability uh, report, you know, where the business community came together and created an eco-efficiency framework right after the uh, the Brundtland report, right? So, so they came back and said, "What is the business response going to be?" Um, but y the changes you're suggesting here, they seem to both go further than just mere eco efficiencies. You're asking people to rethink things, do things better, not just do them more efficiently. And also, there seems to be a motivation component that's very different from, oh yeah, it's true. We are a big business. It's true. We have done many things wrong. We're, we're going to have to do just a little bit better. Th that, that doesn't seem to be the message at all. And absolutely. And I'm, I could not agree with you more, Trond, on this critique of over-focusing on measurement. Because when you focus in the corporate world, when you focus a lot on measurement, you do two things. A, you end up setting a limit to your ambition. You say, this is the, what is the minimum I should do? What is the right amount of biodiversity loss I should be generating? What is the right amount of carbon emissions I should be creating? What's the right amount of you know, land conversion that should be happening as a result of the production of my, my, my products? All of these things are essentially saying, how can I be less bad? And, and that limits ambition, that limits ideas. The second thing it does is it gives a false sense of security around how well we measure these things. And, you know, the amount of double counting, the complexity. I mean, carbon is maybe the one that is closest to being a reliable way of, of accounting for it. And even on that, on scope three emissions, on lots of different things, it's incredibly complex. The other eight 
you know, planetary boundaries are even more complicated, are even more immeasurable, you know, and, and the social foundations are even more so. I mean, what is then, if you were to ask company X, say Coca-Cola, how much biodiversity loss should it be um, generating? Well, what's the right answer? I mean, it's got, it, it creates some employment. That's good. It also creates diabetes in lots of people. And, you know, it also, you know, uses agricultural land that can be used for other crops that are, that are maybe going to be more beneficial or, or could be returned back to wildland to create broader ecosystem services. How do you balance all those things? So this false sense of security that we're able to create meaningful goals for corporations, I think, is, is an issue. Um, uh, but more importantly, yeah, that limitation on ambition is absolutely critical. Um, the other thing I think, you know, implicit in your question around, you know, us going beyond eco-efficiency is that things like eco-efficiency, things where there is a business case to do the right thing, things where, yes, you will reduce your costs, actually, if you were, if you learn to switch your lights off more, or you learn to use less water, or you learn to use less energy in your, in your production, that's fine. I mean, the market can do that anyway. You know, we don't need to create a big hoopla around it. There's already, it's incentivized to reduce its cost structures. It's not sufficient. It doesn't get us there. It doesn't get us anywhere near there. On the social front, it's even more difficult. The things that really matter, things like wages and supply chains, the hundreds of millions of farmers that are stuck in you know, poverty incomes in the supply chains of some of the most profitable companies around the world. There's hundreds of millions of workers that are, you know, in incredibly difficult situations, earning far below what's needed to, to meet their basic needs. The business case to, 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 to demonstrate, actually, you'll make even more money if you just paid your suppliers more and insisted they paid their workers living wage. I mean, I've worked in this field for over 15 years. I'm yet to see a company that can look me in the eyes and tell me, yeah, there's, you know, it, this, is, this is more efficient for us as a company. It's not going to happen if you're designed to maximize returns, to minimize costs, to minimize risks and to maximize sales. It's, it's, if that's the design of the company, then we're basically giving up on a whole host of issues that mean that people are going to be stuck in poverty and a whole bunch of ecological damage is going to happen. So fine, the, the low-hanging fruit of the, of the business case, of the win-wins, let's, where it happens, fantastic. Let's just not waste time on pretending like that's where all the solutions are and let's not kid ourselves that we need to also create a far more uncomfortable and inconvenient trans transition that's going to allow those other ideas to be pursued, even if they mean slightly lower profits. Fascinating. So, but, but if that's the case then, that many of these metrics that we have created, uh, and there will be more of them, even if they become standardized, which, you know, is the holy grail so that everyone kind of follows the same thing, generally it is going to lead to a regression to the mean, meaning everyone's just going to try to uh, perform to standard and everyone's going to try to, you know, lobby and, and influence that standard so that it is reachable. And it's going to not, it's very hard at least within that kind of a, a system to incent extreme innovation and, and, uh, and other initiatives. Can you give me some examples? We were talking as we were prepping about Patagonia. That's gotten a lot of attention, obviously a, a fairly extreme move, and maybe you'll, you'll characterize it better than me, but the owner essentially is returning part of the company to nature uh, in a certain way. And explain to me how that happens and why that might be a model going forward, or is it just going to be a, a, a one very, very extreme uh, version of, of, of this kind of a movement? 
I mean, I think the Patagonia example that happened sort of late later last year was incredibly powerful in showing us what the possibilities are, reminding us what the possibilities are. I mean, essentially, it's it's a model inspired by the idea and the concept of steward ownership. Um, if you haven't heard of steward ownership, look up the organization Purpose Economy. They support steward-owned businesses around the world, particularly big in Northern Europe, in, in Denmark, in, in Germany, in, in, in other parts of Europe, for instance. But what Patagonia did was it said, right, we're going to transform our ownership model. We're going to create two kinds of share structures. One of the share structures is going to get all of the dividends, but not going to have any of the power. They'll have no ability to vote at our annual general meetings. They won't be able to elect the board. They won't have a say over the business. Just whatever's left over will go to those to that shareholder. Essentially, that, that shareholder I'm describing ended up being an ecological NGO, but it could be anybody. And so they create an ecological NGO, say, look, you're going to get the, the, the whatever's left over, but you're not going to be able to squeeze the business so that it creates greater profits, greater returns. The other shares that get no dividends but, can, but get all of the voting rights are held by a purpose trust, a trust that is set up to protect the purpose of the business, that is there to hold the business accountable on are you being beneficial on ecological on, and social grounds? And it's going to pr- put pressure on senior management to, to be able to answer them because that, that, they're the ones that will elect the board. They're the ones that will have voting rights. Separating ownership essentially between two groups. One has the money, one has the power. You never get both. You don't get the power and the money. You get the power or the money. It meant that it's able to lock in a particular purpose longer term. Now, this model is you know, quite famous uh, across Northern Europe. I mean, com- big companies like Bosch have taken on this as a, as a model of ownership. Newer, more funky and innovative companies like Einhorn, which creates vegan condoms in Germany, uh, has also created this model. So there's quite a few share tribe in, in, the, um, uh, in the world of uh, sort of uh, IT has also taken on a steward ownership model. There are loads of them. But what it's demonstrating is that we don't have to be beholden to a particular model that says the ownership of the company will always demand greater returns and the ownership of the company will always demand you prioritize their interests. We can actually structurally change businesses differently. And you know these models have existed. They lead to far more resilient businesses because these businesses survive the test of time. They're not taking huge risks in order to increase returns. And they, their purpose is clear. They have far more relationships of solidarity with their you know employees with their supply chain with their communities they have far more authenticity towards their consumers and communities but critically and i think this is the bit that matters most for us in the world is that they can unlock actions that regular businesses can't do if you are a supply chain manager in patagonia right now the equation shifted a little suddenly if you had that big idea to pursue a regenerative new fiber but it was actually going to require an investment that was a little bit too much and the return was going to be a little bit too slow and the margin was not quite going to be high enough that previously maybe you were you were a little bit more you know questionable about it suddenly this new structure is telling you go ahead this is why you exist go ahead it's a green light all the way through suddenly you're doing things that previously you couldn't do this sort of ideas are actually emerging we've got companies like faith in nature which make shampoo brands in in the which make shampoo products in the UK that decided to put Mother Nature on its board. It decided to, to put an organization called Lawyers for Nature as a voting board member on its board, for instance. You know, we're starting to see these innovations in the way 
businesses are structured that are following the rhetoric of all of this purpose washing we're seeing, this fantastic sort of wordsmithing of how fantastic sustainable companies are. Well, it's not just the actions, but the structure of the company that needs to embody those words for it to be authentic, because it's that structure that unlocks the biggest, boldest actions that currently we're not seeing enough of. Let's shift to future, and you know nobody knows the future, but there are, as you point out, movements and individual companies that are embracing some of these ideas and reshaping these ideas and turning them into not just individual actions, not just reporting, but actually, like you said, new organizational structures. How do you see change evolve? Because sustainable development, right, as a concept, 1987, um, it's been decades with rhetoric. It's been decades with measurement frameworks. Even donut economics has been out for some years. And, uh, you know, there's uh, new reports every month about reaching planetary boundaries. Um, we haven't reached all the, you know, sustainable development goals of the UN. There are many, many reasons to be pessimistic that change isn't happening uh, at a scale and speed uh, that's fast enough to make a huge difference in the next 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. What will the differentiator be and, and, and what are the things that you see that are seeds to, to truly changing these structures? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that what we're beginning to see is enough people that are frustrated with the amount of time we wasted, you know, giving ourselves pats on the back around how great we're doing on sustainability and how was this initiative and project and this glossy, you know, brochure that talks about a fantastic little thing a company is doing in one corner of the world. I think there's a lot of people that realize the inauthenticity of this and the frustration that we've lost a lot of time. I'm, I mean, I've talked about this in the kind of terms I've, we've just been talking about for the last at least 10 years. Ten years ago, I would be laughed out of a room. I would never be asked to, to speak, you know, on a podcast like yours. Ten years ago, five years ago, I would be told this was completely naive. Now I'm being asked to speak at with senior levels of, of government leadership. I'm being asked to speak with mayors. I'm being asked to speak with, you know, networks of family businesses, with startup hubs around the world, with universities that create, you know, startup centres for ideas emerging within universities, because they're beginning to see that the plain vanilla sort of blindly going down the 20th century model of the, the corporate structure is not necessary, nor is it desirable. And uh, actually, it's more interesting to create these new emerging structures. It's, it's more fascinating. It's more inspiring. It's more energizing and dynamic, like this space we're creating where all of these this diversity and innovation is starting to be pioneered by all sorts of people. I think change is going to happen when we reach a bit of a critical mass you know, of individuals that are talking structure and, and won't let go of structure and won't let you know, the, the greenwashing of here's a good example or here's a good metric here or here's a good number you know, uh, distract us from the structural change that's needed to actually unlock the big actions possible. I think that's going to happen among investors. I think there's been a a wave of people in the impact investing and social finance space that have been frustrated by the fact that actually that 
sector has done very little that's particularly different. It's just basically said, look, we want the same returns as everyone else and we also want to burden you with a bunch of impact reporting. That's been the essence of a lot of that sector. I think there's people emerging there that are beginning to do things that are far more um, transformative. I think it's going to happen among entrepreneurs and startups. I think it's going to happen among business leaders who are, who want to leave a legacy, who are, who are sick of you know the, the lack of meaningful progress that's happened. And critically, I think it's going to happen among policymakers that are beginning to realize that they have a choice in the kind of enterprises and businesses that, that populate their economies, that they shape this. They shape this through corporate legal form regulator, uh, legislations. They, they shape this through the way financial markets are regulated. They shape this through public procurement. You know, they, they shape this through the way they engage with businesses and support business startups in, in various forms. They, they are the ones that can really change this. And actually, they're not agnostic to the current, to the forms. They're, they're currently, the policy ecosystem is fostering the current form and the policy mm. ecosystem can shift. But I think that that's probably going to be the last card. I think the first cards where, where I think the energy is going to come from is going to come from the entrepreneurs who are creating something different and talking about why it matters, why it's so critical that actually Earth is a, is, is a shareholder that controls Patagonia. You know, it's going to come from that those people that are inspired by, by that story that then leads to investors who are beginning who are going to say, I want to be a part of that. I want this long-term financial relationship with those entrepreneurs and those enterprises that are transforming in this way. And I think the policymakers will, will take that seriously and start to go, this is the direction of travel. We, let's jump on. And, and I think change always happens really slow and then fast. You know, it looks like it's not coming and we reach tipping points that that suddenly start to accelerate change. And I think that's what we're building. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a tough space to occupy when you feel like a small drop in the ocean of the total global economy. But you can see the energy brewing and you can see the authenticity of what, what's growing here. That's beginning to interest so many more people. Fascinating stuff. So, uh, I mean, may maybe there's no answer to this, but do you think the tipping point will be reached if we have kind of a Microsoft or a Tesla of, of this movement? I mean, Patagonia perhaps was the first of those, but you know, if, if a truly massive and growing company in one, two, three industrial spaces, or maybe creating its own space, you know that that would certainly, you know, maybe that is has to be a startup. But I'm just, I'm just sort of, um, I'm also reading there. There is a frustration in any change, right? Because you, even though the theory is uh, there are tipping points, until you get to those tipping points, you haven't gotten to the tipping points. So the the problem is you're you're, you're then. Uh, using the you know the old examples and, and what I'm saying is they're 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 just I just want to speak a little bit for this for the establishment in all of these sectors you're talking about and they're and they'll come back from this podcast and others and they'll say yeah okay well they talked about uh, fashion companies they talked about artisan cooperatives and dairy farmers we haven't talked so much about those examples but those are the ones that you know are, are, are leaders and then maybe some IT firms that have seen the light maybe some startups because those are young people but until you see the change in these companies that everybody talks about that the companies that everybody wants to work for or they you know they have a product from that company that means something to them in their daily life can this really reach a tipping point without getting there? 
And 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 who, where should we look for this kind of guidance? Are we, do we need an Elon Musk for a donut economics to I mean, to take I, hold? It, it's a really good question. I mean, I don't I don't have a crystal ball of exactly how that change is going to happen. I think having a more you know universally known brands is going to be helpful. I think maybe outside of the Anglo-American sphere. There are well-known companies that look this way. Mondragon in Spain is one of the largest industrial businesses there. That that's a federation of cooperatives across the Basque region and now beyond. For instance, in India, the biggest dairy-based company, I mean, bigger than Nestle in India, is a company called Amul, which is owned by 3.6 million smallholder dairy farmers. You know, we do have some large-scale examples of of this. That maybe are not household names in, in New York or London, but are household names where where people are living and, and are really impacting things. But I also think that we need to question this desire for companies to be huge. To be, you know, I think we can scale out rather than scale up. We can replicate. We can, and maybe it's more it's healthier. I mean, to have companies that are more embedded in their local economies, in their local communities, that where the decision makers are close to where the impact is. You know, when I worked at Procter & Gamble, our CEO and our, our senior leadership were in Cincinnati. Now, I'm not sure they would have ever seen the true impact of their raw material supply chain. You know, the, the way that things operated, they wouldn't have seen the impact that has on local communities, that the decisions they're making on the pricing contracts and the, 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 the terms of their contracts that are having indirectly on these lives and the local ecosystem you know, would, would have been just so remote. And I think it's the same thing for so many companies that are set up in these corporate models where spreadsheets are a representation of what their reality is. And, and maybe the goal is going to be far more decentralized, far more distributed models of enterprise and business that are taking forms that maybe we can't even imagine yet. You know, we're, we're seeing all sorts of new organizational forms right now. So um, yeah. I don't know. I think it would be helpful. I mean, there was a, a push at one stage to turn Twitter into a user-owned co-op, into a platform cooperative. I've seen other emerging models like Fairbnb emerge as an alternative to Airbnb. So there are some potential big names out there that, that, are, that are on the up. Fairphone, for instance, that I mentioned earlier is a modular product that there's so much more as well on social grounds. Um, but at the same time, I think there are lots of different ways companies and products and services touch our lives and it might not always be through those very high-profile consumer goods brands. Erin, I'd just like you to uh, restate, because I thought they were pretty succinct already, but uh, regenerative, distributive, and modular. Can you just, in, in, in a statement, uh, explain what you meant by these three concepts? They're very powerful concepts, but they, they, they are redefined by so many different groups. You had a very interesting way of, of, of seeing it. Can you just restate that for, for, for us? Sure. So regenerative is about really the alternative of the linear economy. So we've got currently a model where we take from Mother Nature, we rip out resources, we make things with them, we use those things, then we lose those things. And we repeat this over and over again. We create a huge amount of waste and we're ripping out resources constantly. Now, the alternative of that is to work with and within the, the cycles of the living world. And that's being regenerative. That's about saying, right, well, asking big questions, for instance, like if we weren't here, how would the wildland next door be behaving? Well, how could our factory behave much more like the wildland next door? That wildland next door that's sequestering carbon, that's cleaning groundwater, 
that's putting nutrients into the soil, that's cleaning the air, that's keeping the local area cool during very hot summer days. You know, that If we, that factory didn't exist, that would be what the local ecosystem is doing, those ecosystem services that some people call. Um, the, you know, So regenerative is about really saying, how can we work with and within those cycles, not outside of them and definitely not destroying them? And it's about being as positive as possible. Now, mod being modular product design is a subset of this. It's a subset of being regenerative, of saying that, well, let's design products so that we're not creating things for single use. We're not creating things to be thrown away. Let's repair them. Let's let's give a way to to upgrade them. And the Fairphone model is is a really good way of depicting that concept. Because if you open up a Fairphone, what the user can do is with a very easy, accessible, small screwdriver, it can it can take out a small piece. It can replace it or upgrade the camera. It could it can repair the product close it up again, minimizing the e-waste. It, it's not got to a point where it's completely eliminated the e-waste. Another example is interface carpets, which has created modular carpet design so that actually if the industrial carpet has got some damage, then a small square of it can be taken out and it can be repaired or it could be recycled and, 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 and that's only that small square is replaced. So you're not ripping out all of the carpet, creating a huge amount of waste and coming back. So that's modular, modular design that is a subset of bringing regenerative thinking into the business world. The mm. distributive side is about how do we make sure we distribute the value that we have created with all those that have co-created it? Because currently, if we look at the rising levels of inequality, we look at the way that actually, if you look at Thomas Piketty's work, the central premise of it is that the returns to capital are rising far more than returns to labor. If you look at it through a different way, the increase in productivity we've seen over the last few decades has not led to the kind of growth in incomes and wages you would expect. It has been channeled into those that have wealth to invest. And that model where actually it isn't distributive at all, it's concentrating wealth, concentrating power in the hands of fewer and fewer people. And actually, the, all that economic activity that actually has an ecological footprint that the earth can't sustain, well, the value from that, that at least we can do is to distribute that value far more with a higher proportion of it going to wages, a higher proportion of it going to taxes, high to, to pay for essential services for, for everybody, and a higher proportion of it going to benefit society and all those who have engaged in creation of that product and service. So that's being distributive by design and Models like employee ownership and distributing profits with workers and communities is, is, is an example. There's loads of employee ownership models out there, including ones that have been recently transforming across the US and UK most prominently. It's fascinating stuff. And I realize we could uh, talk about this for uh, a long time because these are concepts that are very interesting and you clearly have uh, a level of uh, grasp of of these concepts that I think is uh, you know it's striking and very interesting to hear. I, I'm uh, excited to have learned more. I don't want to keep you any longer. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I hope that we get to have this discussion a few years from now, and that we can see some real examples of this that have reached even wider circles. Um, so thanks a lot for your time. Thanks, Trond. And I'll just remind people, if anyone's interested in some of the ideas that I mentioned, they can go to donuteconomics.org. It's D-O-U-G-H-N-U-T. So the, the British spelling of the word donut economics. And you can find on there the, the business tool, for instance, that I, that I mentioned, but also a whole bunch of tools for applying donut economics that's out there in the public domain for people to use.
All right. So that's Erin Sahan from the Donut Economics Action Lab deal. Thank you so much. Thanks, Trond. You have just listened to another episode of the Futurized podcast with me, Trond Arne Unheim, futurist, scholar, and author. If you are interested in my products or services, feel free to check out futurized.org slash store, where you can book a keynote speech, become a sponsor or partner, request a podcast swap, or buy a few of my books, such as Augmented Lean, Health Tech, Future Tech, Pandemic Aftermath, Disruption Games, or Leadership From Below. If you're interested in any or all of my projects, check out my website, trondundheim.com, which has links to other podcasts as well as my public appearances. Thank you. Please share this show with those you care about. To find us on social media is easy. We are Futurized on LinkedIn and YouTube and Futurized 2 on Instagram and Twitter. See you next time. Futurized, conversations that matter.